in my mind, I think it's really important for all types of firms, whether it's startup firms or the VC firms themselves, to be really clear internally on how DEI initiatives fit into their core values as a company so that it really becomes an ingrained part of a company's operating system and not just a trendy signal that is Mm -hmm. really easy to abandon when markets potentially take a turn. Hi, everyone, and happy Wednesday. Welcome back to season two of the Girls Into VC podcast. Girls Into VC is the first organization dedicated to increasing the number of women in venture capital. We're forming a pipeline of talented and motivated young women ready to enter the fields of venture capital with the educational resources and mentorship we provide. My name is Kritika Jen, and I am your podcast host. Today, I am interviewing Chloe DeJokis, Vice President at Volition Capital. A Yale graduate with a Harvard MBA, Claude was named one of Growth Cap's top women leaders in growth investing for the second year in a row in 2023. She began on the startup side with L2 Inc., which was later acquired by Gartner, and worked with major brands like Nike and Estee Lauder. Now, she is a member of Volition's internet and consumer investment team, serving as a board member and observer to several major portfolio companies, including Burst, Oral, and Super 73. Welcome to the podcast, Claude. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to be here. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about your career path leading up to Volition Capital? Yes, absolutely. Um, So as you just mentioned, I actually started my career at a startup that was based in New York City and called L2, as you mentioned. And just for context, it was really sort of a hybrid between a startup as well as a consulting firm. So think of it as more of a data-driven consulting firm. It was focused on digital strategy, and it was looking to be disruptive to more traditional management consulting firms by taking more of a productized approach to consulting. And a big part of my job at L2 was to actually craft digital strategies for legacy consumer brands that were increasingly being disrupted by these digitally native challenger brands. And I would say we were also operating at a time when a lot of the now obviously very ubiquitous social commerce platforms like Instagram and Pinterest. They were really only just beginning to get traction. I'm kind of dating myself a little bit here. Um, But a lot of our time was really also spent on educating marketing executives who had spent their careers spending 100% of their media dollars, in many cases, on print advertising, and really making the case to them why it made sense for them to be making some bold new bets on digital media. And I was at L2 for about five years until the company was acquired. And it was really at that point that I made the decision to go back to business school, get my MBA. And that was really with the goal of transitioning into early stage investing. So kind of a follow-up question. Um, You mentioned that you were talking to a lot of companies that were following like more legacy strategies. Um, What was some pushback you were getting from um, the companies that you were talking to when you were pitching these newer ideas to them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of times there wasn't even specific pushback or resistance to the new platforms themselves. It was more of just an attitude of this is the way things have always been done and the way that brands have always been built. And in particular, some of these consumer enterprises and and organizations that we were working with, these are brands that were around for not just years, but decades, or in some cases, centuries. We had clients and customers that were established luxury brand houses and Print was what they knew. Their idea of innovation was including a perfume sample in, you know, the September issue of Vogue. 
And the idea of taking even a small percentage of, of that advertising budget and transitioning it to a platform like Facebook or Instagram, um, which was really seen as very new age, um, you know, a very youthful customer who wasn't maybe necessarily their core customer at the time. Mm-hmm. That was a very, very foreign concept. So I think it it really just had to do with old habits and and very entrenched ideologies. That's actually a really good transition to my next question. Um, I was looking at Militia Capital's website um, where you were featured and you talked about how you wanted to transition out of that, um, I guess, maybe like culture and company and work with the disruptors and see how they could grow. So can you talk about that transition and how you got to Volition Capital? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so towards the tail end of my time at L2, I went from being very generalist and working across a large swath of different consumer companies to increasingly spending a lot of my time specifically in the beauty category. And there were some really fascinating brands in beauty at that time that were taking huge bites of market share out of the leaders. And these same brands were oftentimes getting acquired for these really eye-popping amounts. And, you know, technically my role at the time was to obsessively monitor the beauty landscape to really understand what these newer disruptor brands were doing so effectively to be driving this growth and to be gaining this market share. And then to turn around and help the CMOs of the larger, more established brands to either mimic those same tactics with even bigger budgets behind them, or in some cases, even to actually acquire the challenger brands before they grew big enough to become a real threat. And actually, as part of that process, we went so far as to actually publish a product, which was called the Indie Index. And that focused specifically on these independent or indie beauty brands, really with the goal of quantifying their traction and highlighting their strategies. And again, I was supposed to be looking at this ecosystem through the lens of management teams at my pre-existing clients, big conglomerates, think uh, Unilever, a P&G, an Estee Lauder, a L'Oreal. But I was really finding that even though those were my stakeholders, I had this deep understanding um, that these independent brands, that was really becoming a, a passion area of mine. And I really wanted to know how these brands were using the internet and new distribution channels and e-commerce, social media and commerce platforms, how all of that was playing a part in their growth. So um, as I was kind of doing this work and, and publishing that indie index report that I mentioned, something really interesting happened, which was that we were starting to get an avalanche of outreach from investors in the VC and the private equity community. And they were interested in, in what we were seeing because they were also laser focused on startup brands and digitally native disruptive brands and, and understanding who was doing well in the space. And that was really the first time that I had ever spoken to the private investment community. Um, I, and I came to learn that they were interested in using the types of reports that we were publishing as a sourcing tool and as a way to actually enhance their deal flow and find strong companies. And, you know, I'd say that was really what first kind of sparked my interest uh, to answer your question in, in getting into VC. Um, I realized that the toolkit that I had assembled at L2 and the way that I was looking at brands, that could actually be a way to screen for interesting companies that were potentially primed for venture investment. Well, you basically answered my next question, um, mm-hmm. but <laughs> um, like, how do you think that your work at L2 helped you um, when you started at Volition? Yeah. So, yeah, I would say that was very much um, a way that it helped me in terms of the deal flow, kind of sourcing side of things. But there's a different angle that I'll, I'll focus on in terms of answering this question. And um, 
in order to do so, let me just kind of back up first and say that one of the overarching themes that really defines our investing strategy at L2 is this idea that we look to invest in capital efficient businesses. And that's because we believe that a company that's very capital efficient, or in some cases, truly bootstrapped, having never raised any external capital, that can really be a way of signifying that the company has a fundamentally sustainable business model that doesn't necessarily need outside capital in order to be self-sustaining. Um, so again, in many cases, the the companies that we invest in at Volition, they've either raised a very modest amount of capital and, and have been able to grow in a disciplined way, or in some cases, they have been literally bootstrapped and, and never raised a nickel. And I think something about my time at L2 that really prepared me for, for this style of investing, and one of the reasons why Volition resonated with me so much as I was going through the interview process, is we were bootstrapped actually at L2 um, for my first probably two or three years there. We were a high growth, very bootstrapped business that had never raised external capital. And I love telling this story because I think being bootstrapped is so glamorized in the investment community. You think, oh, wow, like if you can find a company that's balancing the needle or threading the needle between high growth, but being very capital efficient and very bootstrapped, it's appealing to so many investors. But I would say it's a very different thing to actually live through that as an employee and to internalize how scrappy you have to be as a founder, as a management team to actually fund your own growth in that bootstrapped way. And, it, you know, it requires hard choices and a lot of sacrifices as a team. Um, just as an example, like it's so common to find yourself as a bootstrapped company outgrowing your office space, but really not having the resources to move. So you have too many people crammed into a tiny space. I remember at one point at L2, you know, there were dozens and dozens of us all sharing a single bathroom, um, you know, men and women on one floor. Uh, and, you know, that's just kind of a, a fun example. But um, at, at the core, I think in a bootstrap company, resources are very hard to come by. They're rigorously prioritized. I think on the positive side, that forces creativity. Um, on the more negative side, there there can be an emotional toll to always having to make those hard trade-off decisions every single day. And I'm very grateful that I did get to have that experience firsthand, given that it's so core to Volition's approach as a firm. I personally feel like I have a deeper level of respect and empathy for what bootstrapped entrepreneurs and management teams accomplish every day. And just the I would say tremendous amount of cultural buy-in that's required as a high-performing team um, mm -hmm. to actually kind of grow in that way through some of those leaner years. <laughs> oh, wow. That's very interesting. I have never heard of this before, but that's really fascinating to hear about. Um, so when you were at L2, what was the startup landscape like? And were there any challenges you faced and how did you overcome them? Yeah. Um, so kind of, I guess, on that theme of, of bootstrapping and leaner years, L2 as a company was founded in 2009. So it was really right on the tail end of the Great Recession. And mm -hmm. the founding story of the company was sort of one of those recession era stories. One of the co-founders at the time, she had just graduated from her own MBA program. And she was supposed to start full-time at a consulting company. And she actually had her consulting offer pushed back by six months just because the economy was so slow at the time. 
And so she was looking for project-based work in the meantime. And that was actually how she started collaborating with L2's other co-founder. And that was kind of the founding story of, of the company. And obviously it turned into a full-time company and, and she never actually ended up taking that consulting job. But mm-hmm. all this is to say, we were we were bootstrapped out of necessity. It wasn't sort of a glamorous mm-hmm. choice. Um, it was it was a very hard year and time and environment in which to raise capital. And we were lean because we couldn't afford not to be. And then I would say also as a consulting company, when I think about what our customers and our clients were experiencing, budgets for all those expensive consulting projects, they had dried up and it made the sales process of actually selling in L2 services very challenging. Um, but at the same time, that was an opportunity because again, it it forced us to be scrappy and creative mm-hmm. in terms of how are we going to land new accounts without actually having a sales team? So I'll give you an example. Um, something that we really leaned into as an organization was content marketing. Mm-hmm. And we would actually publish reports analyzing Again, we were very focused on digital strategy. So we would analyze what we thought of as the digital competency of prospective clients. And we would actually rank these clients and these companies relative to each other. And we would publish the rankings. So the rankings themselves were public. You could see how you stacked up against your competition. But the actual report and the detail and the underlying analysis, that was all sitting behind a paywall. So you can imagine how frustrating that would have been to executives they would reach out to us because they wanted to learn why did we rank the way we did and how can we improve and what are you seeing as opportunity for us? And that inbound inquiry, that would become an opportunity for us to start a sales conversation. So that's just one example, but you know, it was a great learning example or a learning experience for how just being scrappy and creative. And in this instance, content marketing was a way for us to drive in inbound opportunities. And and frankly, that's not too different from trying to drive VC deal flow as well. So um, it's all kind of come full circle for me. Very, very cool. Um, So now I want to pivot the conversation to your time at Volition Capital. Um, You said that you sit in the consumer and internet space. So what are some trends you're seeing, especially as we see the rise of AI and e-commerce? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say one of the things that I'm most excited about as it relates to the intersection of consumer and AI um, would be the democratization of services that mm-hmm. might have previously been out of reach for the average consumer. And I think as AI is making it easier for, I, I just have sort of in my head this whole subset of professionals that are very highly skilled and highly paid. It could be attorneys, it could be tax accountants, it could be wealth managers. Um, AI is really giving them the ability to increase their own productivity. And as a result, they can scale themselves a lot further than they previously have been able to. And I think that creates an opportunity for more people to access services affordably that could really meaningfully enhance their lives and which were previously out of reach. So, you know, that could mean someone who maybe didn't previously have the means to hire a lawyer to support their Mm -hmm immigration journey. Now they're able to actually access professional support, maybe through some sort of an AI-enabled legal tech interface. Or maybe it's a young family who was previously managing their own finances, and now they're able to access more professionalized wealth management services for a fraction of the cost of what it formerly would look Mm -hmm. like to to access that through more traditional channels. Um, I think that's just such an exciting trend, and it's one that's really easy to root for because it really means improving the lives of everyday people at really meaningful scale. 
Awesome. And that's very, I think that gives people a lot of hope that like there's this tool that can help impact so many lives in different ways. Um, so given our current um, economic landscape on the flip side, what are some challenges you are seeing um, founders face? Definitely. I think a lot of founders have partnered with VCs or found themselves partnered with VCs who previously were really pushing them to adopt more of a growth at all costs mentality just a few short years ago when the markets were very hot. And in many cases, it's those same VCs who have quickly reversed themselves and asked those same management teams to actually deprioritize growth in favor of profitability as the market has changed or in sort of light of the current economic landscape, as you said. Mm -hmm. And I think reflecting on what I've seen on the boards and the companies that I've been involved in, profitability doesn't happen overnight. And in my experience, it's less of a financial switch that you're flipping and it's more of a cultural and a mindset shift that it really takes time to embed in the mentality and the operating system of a company from the top down and it's very very difficult to make that pivot on a dime so my advice to founders um just reflecting on that would be regardless of the type of macroeconomic climate that you might find yourself raising in, could be now, it could be at some point in the future, really prioritize partners who are going to be relatively consistent and level-headed in their guidance and their messaging to you through both good times and bad. And I think when markets are hot and everything is up and to the right and it seems like no one can fail, you actually want, in my opinion, that partner who's actually going to help you to pull back a little bit and not lose sight of the ultimate goal as a founder of controlling your own destiny. Mm -hmm. And that's the same type of partner who's going to be balanced when it comes to weathering leaner times as well, and maybe when things aren't going so well. So um, looking for someone who can be that consistent force and a very grounding force as opposed to riding the highest of highs and the lowest of lows um, that would probably be one of my biggest takeaways from just going through this most recent economic climate. Mm. I kind of to follow up on that. Do you think that maybe this time that we're in was necessary to vet out the startups that are were just maybe inflated or like were able to start up when there was a boom, but now are not doing as well? I think correctional cycles can absolutely have that impact. And I do think in many cases that can be healthy for the markets. Um, I would go so far as to say, though, I don't think that that impact is limited just to the startup companies themselves. I think there's mm -hmm. probably also venture firms who were able to successfully raise funds and deploy capital very aggressively into a highly priced environment with potentially investment strategies that weren't fundamentally sustainable at the end of the day. And I think those same funds and managers are are likely going to find themselves having a harder time raising additional capital and additional funds mm -hmm. in the future. Um, so I think there's a, a healthy stabilization and correction that happens uh, on both sides of the market, potentially with startups, um, but also with the sources of capital as well. Mm. And are you seeing this like affect like some sectors more and other sectors less? Like how is that being spread out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think by virtue of just being a consumer investor, I think the 
impact can be more magnified in consumer, particularly mm -hmm. when you're dealing in categories that have a little bit more of a discretionary angle to them versus we do have a team here at Volition that's more focused on enterprise software and more B2B spend, which I think can be a little bit more stable. Um, but I think, you know, if you're investing in fundamentally sound businesses with strong unit economics and scalable channels that are economic, I think you can insulate yourself a little bit from some of those cycles if you're leaning into the right business fundamentals. Gotcha. Um, I want to shift this conversation a little bit more on the DEI side. Um, so when you were in the startup space, what was it like in terms of DEI and how has it evolved since? Yeah, I've absolutely seen it become more of a focus since when I first joined a startup company um, back at the beginning of my career. Mm. That being said, I do think it's a reality and a, a sad one that DEI initiatives are always going to be more popular to champion when the markets are healthy. And mm. I think that focus can sometimes evaporate during a downturn. So in my mind, I think it's really important for all types of firms, whether it's startup firms or the VC firms themselves, to be really clear internally on how DEI initiatives fit into their core values as a company so that it really becomes an ingrained part of a company's operating system and not just a trendy signal that is mm -hmm. really easy to abandon when markets potentially take a turn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So what advice do you have for young women entering male-dominated fields like venture capital um, to become more comfortable in those fields? Sure. I think mentorship is so powerful in this regard. And I, I think it's very important to have both male and female mentors, um, folks who you respect, who have been successful in their own careers, who can advise you and hopefully champion you as an investor. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important part of this profession. Um, so I think it's advice that I give to women, young women in particular, if they're looking to enter this field, but look for mentors and they could be men or women. Um, but really the most important thing is that they have your growth and best interests at heart. Mm. And not to put you on the spot, but are there any mentors you had in your career that you felt like helped you a lot? Absolutely. Um, I, I can't say enough about the current environment at Volition right now and just the amount of mentorship that I get from all of the partners here. It's a very supportive environment. As someone who came from a non-traditional background, I didn't have a finance background or a prior investing background. Mm -hmm. There has been enormous support and personal and professional development um, of me ever since I've joined the firm. But I will also say that just by virtue of being in a very small, tight-knit, high-growth startup environment earlier in my career, both of L2's founders played a really important role uh, in kind of getting me where I am today in my career. And I'm I'm very grateful to both of them uh, just for the interest that they they took in me as a, as a young employee, mm -hmm. uh, joining them straight out of college, um, really getting me, you know, to business school and beyond. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful to, to both of them. Uh, Scott Galloway and, and Maureen Mullen are, are the two co-founders of L2. Oh, that's awesome to hear. Um, so since you've had such a successful career, um, what are some skills you believe one should have to succeed in venture capital? Yeah, 
I think the biggest one that comes to mind is intellectual curiosity and just an inherent part of this job and and a part of my day-to-day that I'm so grateful for is the ability to be very quickly hopping in and out of different companies and different industries. You could easily do five to 10 pitch calls a day with founders. And it's likely that all of them are going to be coming from different industries, very different business models. And it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And you you need to have the mindset that this is a gift to learn through the lens of an operator in each of those respective companies and industries every single day. And just to really embrace, as I said, that that learning process mm-hmm. as a gift and as a privilege. So I think someone who has an inherent sense of intellectual curiosity, who's always looking to broaden their horizons, who can get curious and get fascinated by just anything and and kind of find what's interesting. Um, I think those people tend to do really, really well in this industry. And and it it becomes a little bit of a muscle over time as well. I think your velocity and your ability to get up to speed on an industry happens more and more quickly the more you you train that ability. So um, yeah, intellectual curiosity would probably be number one on my pick in terms of skills that I see making someone successful in this space. And then kind of to broaden that question, what are some habits you suggest in general that students should implement before they're entering the workplace, starting their first job? Definitely. I think building your network is so important. And I think it's one of those habits that really compounds over time. If you're deliberate about doing it and actually keeping in touch with people, which I know can be hard. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think to the extent that you can set a goal, it can be as simple as every week, I'm going to reach out to one new contact and I'm going to catch up with one old contact. If you do that week by week, month by month, year by year, it's obviously going to pay such dividends over time. And I think for folks who are looking potentially to break into investing, the network that you're establishing, those people can come from all types of backgrounds. It doesn't just need to be founders. A diverse network is probably going to be a mix of some founders or or people who may eventually start a company, but you're also going to want people who currently work in venture, folks who work for strategic companies that may someday acquire your portfolio companies. It could be journalists who are going to cover new and interesting companies. It could be community organizations or, or networks of angel investors or funding sources for new immigrants or veterans. The list goes on and on. And I think the people who can really build up and maintain that diverse network are are really going to see that pay down, uh, pay off down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And honestly, at the end of the day, the world is so small. I feel like there's always some sort of like crossover. So having that one network is definitely super helpful. Well, that wraps up our time today. But thank you again, Chloe, for coming on the podcast and sharing your story for us. Um, it was really interesting to hear about all of your little like anecdotes and just your time in on the startup space and eventually moving to Volition. And we wish you all the best with Volition Capital and all your future endeavors. Thank you uh, so much. I really yeah. appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, of course. And I thank you to our listeners for tuning into this week's podcast and supporting Girls Into VC. Make sure to check out our website, girlsintovc.com and follow us on, on our social media at Girls Into VC. Join us every other Wednesday to hear from female venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, innovators, and advocates about their career paths and lessons they've learned along the way. See you soon.